traditional ballads and children's rhymes here to evoke the world of childhood. One ballad tells about a small boy nicknamed Mickey Pick Slate, who was a breaker boy in the Audenried Breaker near Hazelton. The story goes, one day Mickey fell into the crusher rolls and was ground up with the coal. His mother, who had walked him to and from work each day, lost her mind. Each day, she continued to wait at the breaker for him, scanning the sooty face of each young boy as he walked past, looking for her Mickey. Mickey picks slate early and late. Mickey picks slate early and late. That was this poor little breaker boy's fate. The poor simple woman at the breaker still waits to take home her Mickey Pick Slate. We're also told Manus McHugh was another boy who lost his life in the breaker. His job was to oil the breaker machinery. At noontime one day, he was in a hurry because he wanted to get outside to play with the others. Rather than take the time to shut the machinery down, He attempted to oil it while it was still in motion. His arm got caught in the gears, and he became hopelessly entangled. After an investigation of McHugh's death, a 1903 report stated, boys will be boys and must play unless they are held under strict discipline. But no changes were made to make the conditions safer for the boys. Those reports from the Hershey Middle School website. And it's not just the playful, repetitive nature of children's rhymes Julia Wolfe is evoking in her music. More dramatically, it is the repetitive rhythms of the backbreaking work, the hours upon hours surrounded by clattering, deafening machinery, the non stoppable circulation of the conveyor belt, a sense of the never ending engine of their faith. Owen Lovejoy, acting secretary of the National Child Labor Committee, visited the anthracite coal fields in 1906, and he began a report with a photo of a lone breaker boy carrying his lunch pail. Lovejoy writes, while many of these little boys are full of playfulness and enthusiasm of youth, there are some, like 14-year-old Joe, whose little spirits seem lost in the desert of their daily drudgery, whose environment stifles ambition, and who stand at the close of the day with a comeback for a background, and a bewildered gaze toward a future barren of inspiration or hope, a sense of the never-ending engine of their fate. There's a contrasting photo by the celebrated documentary photographer Lewis Hine, Ray Klimek, photographer and writer from northeastern Pennsylvania, describes that image this way. Hine individuates the boys in this photo. 
There's the same haunted look on most of their faces, registering the physical and psychological weight of their labor, yet something escapes. A child on the left smiles openly, and at least one other suppresses laughter in the way of kids resisting the impositions of the adult world, whether in the guise of foremen or reformers. They appear tragic or impish, like extras from a silent film or Dickensian urchins, cheeks smudged with grime from a day's work. If they're icons of a particular injustice, they're also typical adolescents, representatives of a certain time, a certain class. While an earlier photo showed kids staring down a grim future, this shot hints at a sense of play and even a form of resistance. Anecdotal reports some of the kids themselves suggest they found ways to play within and around the coal field and to strike back, however intermittently, against their elders. Reimagined as a source of recreation, the breaker briefly lost its official function as an elaborate and gargantuan machine, yet playtime was a temporary reprieve, a short-lived carnival haunted by the impending return to work. What Ray Klimek could see in the eyes of those kids, the spark of life, he would earnestly hope was not extinguished. And for Klimek, there is an immense irony. An industry that killed, injured, sickened so many, damaged families, and the very land itself actually left behind a landscape that would serve as a place where a later generation, later generations of young people could learn to survive and thrive as kids. Ray Klimek among them. And he's developed for decades as an artist. He says he keeps circling back to this place where he is from to see it freshly, to view it close up and far up and maybe even inside out, to wrestle some meaning from his encounters. And he closes an essay in the Raritan Review with an image of time and new generations, a sense of circling. On the day I visit, the sky is pure blue. The newly leveled site mirrors and multiplies the sun in the tiny pieces of coal. Birdsong, wind in the trees, before an ATV roars into the scene, drawing and redrawing circles in the calm. The driver keeps at it, moving in and out of the frame, always returning to his circle, deepening the impression. He's not cutting anything flashy, no figure eights, no acrobatics, just retracing the figure, circling until he's satisfied with his mark. Closing words of Ray Klimek from an essay titled Black Desert, 19 Remnants, published in Raritan Review. The elemental image of carbon compounds as circles or rings is not lost on Ray Klimek as he explores what was in fact the literal and figurative ground of his young life. Carbon is the title of an exhibition opening at the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University tomorrow 
and running into July. Klimek is a graduate of Wilkes, and he earned an MFA in photography from Rutgers. He was assistant professor at the Ohio University School of Art, and he is exhibited widely. He's back home again from New Jersey with this show, and we had a chance to talk with him about the evolution of his work. I first started on this project, or various projects I've been working on for many years, when I was studying at ICP, at the International Center of Photography. And I had to come up with a project of some kind, and I wasn't sure quite what to do. But when I kept coming back to Wilkes-Barre, you know, for various things, visiting family or whatever, it just struck me as like, well, of course, this is the perfect, it's a perfect example of the uncanny, which is the strangely familiar because I saw things like home banks, slag heaps, old railroad bridges, all the things that I knew from when I was a kid. And suddenly those things seemed interesting in a way that they hadn't been or that I wasn't completely aware of at the time because they were just so common. They were part of the environment. So they weren't, there was a kind of blindness that you have to it. So coming back really brought that home to me. And It inspired a lot of things. I mean, you know, it just brought me back memories of my family. It brought back memories of history. And I realized that, you know, I mean, there was so much going on there. I remembered collecting fossils when I was a kid from the coal field. So that was something. Suddenly geology plays into this. Environmentalism, which is something later on that I became interested in. So all of these threads sort of started coming together. So that's how it started. And then I got interested in in Wales because there was a connection, a very serious geological connection between Wales and northeastern Pennsylvania that had to do with the transatlantic seam, uh, (laughs) which was the the connection between Wales and northeastern Pennsylvania prior to continental drift. So this is in the days of Pangaea, you know, when everything was kind of, you know, like giant plants and, and stuff like that. So it was really interesting, and it just sort of got deeper and deeper as I went in. And I realized it had something to do with some of my other interests. Initially, I was an English major, and I was particularly interested in William Carlos Williams, who was a proponent of the local, of exploring the local. And that became a part of what I was doing. So, you know, there's all of that. And then the writing is curious, the way that that happened. Actually, when I was a graduate in graduate school in, uh, in English... I dropped out writing a dissertation about William Carlos Williams, but I had gotten tired of, of writing academic prose, I suppose. You know, and it always felt like somebody was breathing down my neck or looking over my shoulder. And Raritan Quarterly, which is where I published my, my recent essay, was, it was just out of reach. You know, it was someplace that I wouldn't be able to publish and under any circumstances. I had nothing to give them, nothing to show, and I just knew it was just something else. When I wrote the essay, as soon as I wrote it, I sent it to Raritan, and they loved it. So there was something that came around. So it's actually going back to the valley, photographing the valley, led to my renewed interest in writing. So I started writing again and writing essays. And so the whole thing has kind of spiraled from there. So it's been a constant development. I love what you did with this essay because you did it in fragments. Is that the word you used? Yeah, sure. 19 fragments. 
And it's as if we have before us different sized pieces of, yeah. of coal. Yeah. And we're yeah. looking at each yeah. one. But you do allude to your childhood. And you start, though, the essay with children. And I yeah. think that's interesting because those of us who know your work and know yeah. you know yeah. that you actually did grow up. Yeah playing yeah. on calm banks. Right, right, right. And we know if we're talking about photography, Lewis Hines' images. Yeah, yeah, I mean, very major, one of the greatest photographers of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, that's something that kind of brought it together for me. I mean, I had spent some time, I spent a lot of time just thinking about just, just I don't know, being, being overtaken, okay, by memories from growing up and, you know, various kinds. I mean, from being a child, going through adolescence, which was a whole other experience, um, and even into adulthood. And so I kept thinking of these things, and I was thinking of Wales, where I had done work and the connections there. And it all came together. And this is, I guess, the way it usually works for me, if there's some kind of image that forms the center of a constellation. And for this project, that, that image was a Lewis Hine image. And the first one is from Pittston, actually. It was, it was uh, taken in Pittston, Pennsylvania, which is actually where one of my grandfathers was a minor. And then there's another one, and I love this photograph as well, but it's just of Breaker Boys. And, you know, I mean, they look kind of grimy and worn down, and it's, it's the typical kind of thing that you expect from seeing child labor photographs, which tend to emphasize the fact that People are oppressed. They're they're treated badly. <laughs> they're uh, they're working weird hours. It's destroying their childhoods, etc. All of which is true. Yet there was some strange resilience to these kids. And the the thing that got to me was one kid who kind of looked like Chico Marx, <laughs> and just had this broad smile on his face. And I just thought, oh, this is great, you know. And this is this is this is it. So I got the idea of doing something that would combine history the history of the minds with a kind of after history, which was a history of play. And it struck me that it was kind of like kids playing on the dead body of the, the industry that had killed their parents or that had, had taken the energy of their parents away. So, you know, I just got fascinated by that and thought, okay, yeah, so this is where I come in and this is where my friends come in and this is where growing up comes in. But it's also because it was a source of... of imagination and imaginative inspiration. You know, when I look back and I think about these plateaus on various calm banks, it was like looking at a, um, a Dolly landscape, you know, or an Yves Tanguy landscape or something like that, where it seemed like anything could pop up. It was this blank slate, but weird things could happen there and did. <laughs> But anyway, so it's sort of like I realized this is probably like fed into all of my interests right now, to, to wanting to be an artist. And originally I was interested in being a poet, but I wasn't a very good poet. You know, I wrote about a handful of poems that were, were, were decent, but like real poets don't have to depend on inspiration as much. You know, they, just, they know what they're doing. But at any rate, uh, you know, it suddenly became apparent to me that I was a better poet with a camera. And it was just something that, that really came from my sense of what the valley was and that it had this like deep, rich history. And it was almost a vertical history. It was from the ground up. It was geological as well as historical. And it was also personal. And there was something interesting about those timelines intersecting. And that became the basis for my writing this piece. Yeah, yeah. 
And the wonderful stories that you evoke in this piece of what it meant to be a little guy, in this case, a little guy, scaling this mountain as if you were conquering. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, one of the things I kept thinking about when I was writing this, I I felt sad or bad for people who are growing up now insofar as there are fewer landscapes like this that are wild landscapes almost designed for free-range children you know and there's you know a bunch of of different analogs to this i mean there's there's a film made in i think it was in the 40s by james agee and helen levitt called in the street and it's kids playing in empty lots in harlem playing on the street you know just doing wild kinds of things with you know there's some adult supervision but it's very informal and i identified with that even though you know i was nowhere near new york but I knew that feeling, and it's something that struck me as being incredibly important as a process of growing up, where I'd actually be able to experience some level of responsibility on my own. And, you know, and I learned about things. You know, I learned a lot about death, <laughs> you know, seeing dead animals all over the place, bones and things like that, which sounds very morbid, but it, it wasn't really. It was a sort of like a, a, a reality check or a sense of reality that it gave me. So that was something that that just continued. Again, it was was such an incredible kind of influence. And then in childhood, it's just sort of the notion of play where you're you're looking for a landscape that will accommodate you, accommodate your your desires and your, your wishes. And this was the perfect spot because there weren't there were no rules. Okay, so it wasn't like a playground where there are a lot of rules and there's a lot of supervision. It wasn't like a park where you have to watch what you're doing, and rightfully so, but there was no way you can hurt a calm bank. There's no way you can do anything that's going to make it worse than it is. But that made it available to all kinds of fantasy and all kinds of uh, explorations. So that's another influence that it had on me. So it just gave me an interesting take on landscape, I think, which has been fascinating to me for a long time. And you use the term black desert. Yeah. How did that come to you, and what does it evoke for (laughs) you? It was easy. It's actually a section of Exeter that's referred to by everyone as the black desert. (laughs) So it's a sizable stretch of land that had just been devastated by the mining industry. Uh, and, you know, it's what it was. It's not, In a way, it's an obvious title because it does look like a desert, you know, and it's, some, it's something that's hard to avoid. But it also struck me that it was, it had implications. Like, it had implications for the kind of games we played. Cowboys and Indians, when we used to play that, or Army, or 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 anything we, we, we wanted to play, you know, and, and these were in days days before people had a lot of excruciations about <laughs> the associations of these these games. But at any rate, uh, that was so that was something that it just stayed with me. It was something that I was just just became more and more aware of and got deeper and deeper into. And it's also something that it grew in a kind of interesting way. The projects that I've been doing grew and I started seeing them all as interconnected. So instead of having a beginning, a middle, and an end, it's just you can jump in at any point and you can see tie-ins with any other point. The show that I have in the Sardoni now really emphasizes that. When I was working with Heather Sincavage setting up the show, what we decided to do was to ignore any kind of chronology, which would have been easier to explain to people what's going on, and to sort of mix pieces together so that we're creating a web. 
and pull on any strand of that web, and it'll take you to any other strand eventually. And that's some, that fascinated me as a structural principle, the idea of using a web or something along those lines rather than a straight narrative. And I think I did the same thing in the essay, where it's just a lot of leaps, a lot of, a lot of different um, directions to go in at various places. Another thing that I wanted to do in the essay was also to give credit to people who had worked here, both in the mines, but also people who had worked here culturally. That's why Franz Klein appears so, so prominently. And Barbara Loden in that magnificent film, Wanda, which if no one's seen it, you have to see it. It's just a great film. And it, it's one of the few films that really has a sense of what it's like growing up in the valley. So, you know, all of those things that I wanted to kind of suggest that there was something about, there, there was a potential here that was untapped. And I think there's a, a quote that I give by the literary critic Kenneth Burke, who, who talks about William Carlos Williams, who, as far as I know, never came to Scranton. But he said Scranton would be a great place for Williams to come because it's sort of like he talks about weeds and, and sturdy plants growing on slag heaps. And I just thought, yeah, that's a wonderful image. And that's, that's kind of what we've got. You talked about the plateaus on the uh-huh. combanks, and we talked yeah. about how you as young lads would yeah, scale right, the... Right. But the idea of perspective, you treat that very interestingly in the essay, the idea of not just the fact that it could be Salvador Dali, or, right, but there right. is something about the perspective one yes, gains, yes. right? Absolutely. There's a strange sense of space that you get on, on, on these sites. And I can still experience them. I mean, it was at a site in Hughestown. And basically, I mean, it's sort of a flat plain, but leading up to a large heap. And I'm walking towards the heap, and I don't feel, I feel like I'm not getting any closer. And it's because I had no sense of scale. And I think that that was part of it. So there's like a weird kind of um, sublime <laughs> that's going on, an industrial sublime insights like this and that's had a huge influence on me and it's even influenced the way i look at other landscapes so it's not it's not simply limited to the wyoming valley and i i mean i notice things like that i'm very aware very aware of those kinds of spatial distortions that happen naturally just as a result of of scale and i'm fascinated by the idea of scale and 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 differences in scale and the way to experience anything, any event, any place at different scales. And that's, that's what's been, that's what I've been doing here in this new project. So, you know, I mean, beginning with, with uh, the project that I did back in 2007, which I showed in the old Cerdoni Gallery, um, which was a, a kind of comparative geography between the slag heaps in Pennsylvania and in Wales, what started happening when I came back and I was desperately looking for a new project and the thought came to me that instead of doing something completely new, I just had to rethink something that I had already done. So part of that in- involved going back to the comb banks and, and shooting them from a different perspective. In this case, it was the perspective was from um, NASA photography. I became really fascinated by NASA shots of the moon and of Mars and thought I'd like to somehow imitate the style of that presentation, but with the comb banks. And there were a bunch of impl- implications there, I think. One was, one was, is, is almost satirical because, and I, I mean, people are talking about this a lot now, and I love the Moore's exploration pictures. I mean, they just knock me out completely. But at the same time, when people start talking about doing things like terraforming, 
you know, I can't help but laugh hysterically because it's sort of like, my God, what would it take to do that? How much money would it cost? And we have these perfectly good slaggies here that you can have fun with, that you can do something with. So in that way, it was satirical, but it's also, I mean, I take seriously that idea of the sublime being something that's, that's both large and, and sometimes featureless and scary. So that was one way that I approached it, but then things just started spiraling out of that. I mean, shortly after that, I just got the idea of thinking about carbon on another level, almost on a chemical level. So I started taking pieces of carbon paper and scanning them and blowing them up and realizing they were landscapes. So there was that kind of connection. They looked very much like landscapes. Then after that, I did a project that involved taking photographs of the sun as the source of carbon, of course, and then making transparencies. Well, first of all, actually digitizing the, fo- the, the, the film, making transparencies, then using the transparencies as negatives to make carbon prints. And I was really interested in doing this because I wanted to make a leap from the representation of carbon to really working with the material. So it became something that was really intriguing. Carbon prints are like, they're they're some of the the earliest prints. They're also the most uh, archival, so they last a long time. With this part, um, unfortunately, I don't know much about alternative processes, but I have an (laughs) ex-student... who did, who became my assistant, and his name is Josh Raftery, and a wonderful, talented photographer and talented printer. And he and I worked together on on making these prints. Then after that, it became a whole other story with um, realizing that I could do something with carbon paper, photographic carbon paper, using it as a negative in its own right, which meant putting it into a camera, a relatively large camera, pointing it directly at the sun and just stepping away for about a half hour or 45 minutes. So we'd end up doing that and then go back and smoke would be rising from the camera. <laughs> um, it was like putting a, a piece of paper under a magnifying glass. And from there, just seeing what it looked like. And I wasn't really interested in representing the sun at this point, what I was interested in was just seeing what the sun could do, what kind of traces it would leave, what kind of actions it would perform on this piece of paper, and largely destructive actions, of course, you know, burning, and but really interesting images, you know, or quasi-images that came out of it, interesting abstractions. So that became something that was a further connection there. And then beyond that, I mean, there's so many things. You leave us in that essay with you're trying to make it back to see a mine fire in Exeter, your own home turf. Right. And so that's another part of the experience. The coal in the ground can catch fire and keep on going for an eon, it would seem like. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and that's part of it. I think it's part of what was valuable about it is that you're, you're dealing with something that's potentially destructive. But it also gives you a kind of perspective where you realize that, which, you know, and you realize the world isn't made for you. You know, you can kind of try to do what you need to do with it and, and, and use it in ways that you want, but it's got its own volition almost, okay? If that's, that's probably not precisely the word, but it feels that way. You know, it feels like there's something willful going on here from something that's not human. And I think that's an important lesson to learn. I mean, it's also kind of a moral lesson 
in a way that you know the world resists and that resistance is the beginning of some kind of morality so i think that that was important um you know and it, it i never had the assumption that the world was made for me which is which is good for a working class kid to have because you realize that rather early but it's also something that that you realize as a it's it's the possibility for art as well as a limitation that making art means coming up against something it's not just freely spinning stuff out of your head it's meeting a material confronting a material shaping it but you can only shape it so far you can't make it do what it doesn't want to do and that's something that's interesting to me we can't go a day these days without hearing about carbon in the news yeah, or reading yeah, about carbon yeah. in the destructive sense. Yeah. Yet one of the things in your work is that coal can be beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And yeah. not just black, right? Right. 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 Well, yeah. One of the points is that, you know, when I was photographing it is that there's a real awareness that the colors aren't black. They're, they're gray. They're green. They're magenta. They're different colors at different times of day. And I remember showing something to a gallerist once who was complaining that about my, my printing and saying, well, these aren't black enough. And I said, you know what, you just don't understand that they're not black. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I did them in color to begin with. And yeah, and there is a beauty to it. I mean, it's a strange beauty. There's no denying it. But I mean, to look at a piece of coal and like, you know, the kinds of colors and rainbows that you see in it, or the way it reflects the sun. I mean, one of my earliest memories is um, walking in the calm bank near my house and, and just looking at the ground and seeing sunlight reflected on pieces of scattered coal all over the place and just feeling very heady and very, very disoriented. Like, I didn't really know where I was. Am I looking up? Am I looking down? What am I seeing? And that's been a real inspiration, too. Just that sense where, you know, and again, it's a sense of scale being disrupted in some way. Will we be seeing some of each of the things that yeah. you've described? Yeah, yeah. All of those will be on display, uh, along with several other things as well. There's a, a series I did um, called The After Archive, which consists of, well, several books or zines. I guess it's a zine. And several large prints, and these are prints of things like um, an old notebook that I found at the Ashley Breaker. And I, I just blew up a single page of that really large. And aside from that, there are other things. Um, industrial stalactites, which are apparently stalactites that form in industrial areas, and it's usually like leaching limestone. Uh, and they're fascinating. Once they, they, they drip down onto a surface they tend to leave an imprint, or the surface leaves an imprint on the material. And I took a lot of photographs of those as well. So again, it sort of like goes back and keeps going back to geology or to history and, and political history, I think, with the um, unionization in the valley and things like that, which has also had a big influence on my life and on my politics. So it's a way of trying to bring those together. And again, it's like a spider web or like a weave of some kind. So they're all there. You can, you can just move around from one to another and try to make the connections yourself. Make your big slate. Early and late. 
photographer and writer Ray Klimek, a native of northeastern Pennsylvania. He is a 1978 graduate of Wilkes University, and he spoke with us today in anticipation of the opening tomorrow of an exhibition titled Carbon that will run at the Sordoni Art Gallery at Wilkes University in Wilkes-Barre through July 16th, so opening tomorrow, May 4th, and running to July 16th at the Sordoni Art Gallery, 141 South Main Street. The exhibition will feature all of the kinds of work that Ray Klimek just described, but there will also be online events and offline events as well. An online event celebrating the exhibition will be held this Wednesday, May 5th at 6 p.m. online, and Ray will talk about Carbon and his early work focusing on the industrial landscapes of Pennsylvania and South Wales. You just need to register in advance so you can get the link, and you can go to the website and get that information, wilkes.edu slash Sordoni Art Gallery, S-O-R-D-O-N-I, Sordoni Art Gallery. There will be other events, too, and they're all free and open to the public. On May 13th, that happens to be the anniversary of the birth of the abstract expressionist painter and Wilkes-Barre native Franz Klein. So there will be an event that will draw everyone into having fun in exploring Klein's painting style and Klimek's photography process. That's an outdoor event. On June 8th, it's Art in Context, a film screening of remote viewing. That's something that Ray Klimek has created with a partner, and they have explored the notion of perspective on Mont Ventoux in France, and it goes back to what he was telling us about being on the top of these comb banks and surveying the larger view. In June on the 26th, Art in Your Hands, a carbon zen garden inspired by the dark enchantment of mining scapes here and abroad. Ray Klimek highlights the mysterious beauty of dark topography, so the gallery staff will help you create a carbon zen garden inspired by his work. And then there will be a closing reception on Friday, July 16th. To get all the information about Carbon, the exhibition of the work of Ray Klimek at the Sordoni Art Gallery, May 4th to July 16th, on the web, wilkes.edu slash Sardoni Art Gallery, S-O-R-D-O-N-I Art Gallery, books.edu slash Sardoni Art Gallery. And the gallery will offer extended hours during the Fine Arts Fiesta in Wilkes-Barre, and that will be the weekend of May 14th and 15th. Wiggity, 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 wiggity